You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hi, I'm Perry Carpenter, and you're listening to Eighth Layer Insights. I have to admit, I have a real soft spot for the mysterious side of cybersecurity and human nature. I'm talking about the things that we see in spy movies or read about in mystery novels, the sneaking around, the breaking into buildings, the finding creative ways to bypass systems, or understanding how our own human nature, our thought patterns, behaviors, and biases can be used against us. And those are skills that can be used for bad purposes if you're a threat actor or good purposes if you're a defender or using those skills to expose weaknesses so that those weaknesses can be patched. Welcome to another bonus Between the Seasons episode of 8th Layer Insights. One of my favorite people in the infosec industry is Deviant Olaf. And if you listen to most of season two, you probably remember Deviant from episode eight, the fun and games episode. As I was interviewing Deviant for that episode, we actually had a lot of little side conversations that I think you'll find super interesting. So on today's show, Deviant and I explore the wonderful world of lockpicking, penetration testing, capture the flag competitions, and even the ethics behind teaching what some might refer to as the dark arts. Welcome to Eighth Layer Insights. This podcast is a multidisciplinary exploration into the complexities of human nature and how those complexities impact everything from why we think the things that we think to why we do the things that we do and how we can all make better decisions every day. This is Eighth Layer Insights. I'm Perry Carpenter. Welcome back. As I said earlier, this is a special bonus episode of Eighth Layer Insights. So this episode is a bit stripped down, focusing on a person rather than taking a deep dive into a specific topic. This is a single guest episode featuring Deviant Olaf, and I'm sure you'll find it fascinating. I am Deviant Olaf. I am casually known as a physical penetration specialist although also professionally known as that, since that is my job. My job is to get into places where I am not ostensibly supposed to be. In addition to doing the sneak and peek type routine, which is the fun, media-ready side of my job, I am also a locksmith, a safe technician, a safe and vault inspector. So when it comes time to rough out a building, install some hardware, or if you have hardware existing that is misbehaving, The language of our trade is I get to neutralize certain secured containers and spaces. Is the name that you're going by, is that a name that you've assumed or is that your given name? That is my given name at this point in life. I'll just quote Lady Bird. It is my given name. I gave it to myself. Nice. And so what's the purpose behind that? I'd love to hear the backstory. So to deviate, even though the word to be a deviant might have negative connotations to some, we should always be mindful that to deviate just means to not turn in the expected course or direction. And I like to remind others, there's nothing wrong with thinking different, being different. It's often in the service of 
pioneering new, new ideas and new ways of thinking to deviate out from the expected status quo. So the deviant side is that. The other fun part that makes me also mysterious and unfindable online is Olaf. Olaf spelled not at all like it sounds. For those listening at home, check the show notes, I guess. <laughs> Olaf is O-L-L-A-M, uh, and that is a Celtic name. Essentially, it was a rank of scholar. I am not a person of faith, but the Druids, as my understanding, and the Celtic religious scholars essentially had a hierarchy of learning. And you were at different ranks in this system. And the Olaf was not the highest rank, but you had mastered many of the bits of knowledge, which were all oral traditions at the time. Mm -hmm. And you would essentially almost do a graduate thesis work or a graduate project of traveling place to place on foot, just teaching others, sing for your supper, sort of teaching and learning the local histories and the knowledge from places that you went. So I like the idea of being a, a bit of a peripatetic person who goes from place to place learning. For a long time on the DEF CON forums, my tag was peripatetic penetrator. Nice. So the Olaf I am. I love both of those stories behind both names. Um, do you have any kind of favorite story or something that illustrates any of the points that you like to make? I've always enjoyed the fact that lockpicking is a very low difficulty on-ramp to security mindset and security thinking. Most of the best stories that we have from our job, and again, my firm, the core group, does professional penetration, where you know the boss might know we're coming, or the head of security might know we're coming, but re regular people in the office don't know we're coming. It really comes down to the lock mechanism will delay us, but it's really the people, the human beings in the office that are going to be responsible for either catching us or not, not stopping us at all. Maybe you have a bin in your building that's the shred bin, right? Where you don't have a shredder on site because it makes noise and you have to maintain it. Well, we'll farm that out. We'll hire a company. They come once a week. They clear out the shred bin, charge us a small fee. Perfect. Everyone wins. Especially me. When my team and I are in the building, we'll look for those shred bins right away. They have all the juicy stuff. It's all in one place. I don't even have to hunt for it. Mm. I was in a Silicon Valley type firm and you know, there's no cubicles there. Everyone's at their standing desks. And I'm walking through the office, just kneeling down and opening shred bins. This is an open office environment. And at one point, I was right next to a person's desk. I don't work there. They know they're co-workers, you'd think. And I'm really even making a bad show of it, making more noise. It was late in the job. Really, the end of the week, you're just trying to get caught. And at one point, finally, the person takes off their headphones, looks down, and goes, what are, you, what are you doing to that lock? Are you trying to pick that lock? And without even turning around and looking at him, I just went, yeah, sometimes got to take a little more effort than the others. <laughs> I didn't explain myself at all. Just And the person kind of, I think, stared at me for a sec and then went, all right, went back to their work. Wow. So the number of stories we have of people, you know, security guards catching us where we don't belong, clearly with weird manipulation tools in our hands. And they say, hey, what, what are you guys doing in here? And they were called because we'd set off, you know, a door sensor alarm. And my teammate on this one job, you know, we've told the story before, he was ready to show, we have an authorizing letter that says, this is a security test. We've been hired by the head of blah, yeah. blah, blah. And he had his hand in his pocket on the letter. What are you guys doing? And I just looked at the guard and said, what do you think we're doing? What does it look like we're doing? And it broke his brain. He went, <laughs> well, it looks like you're trying to open that door. But I mean, we can do that for you if you work here. And I said, yeah, I mean, that'd be way easier than using these tools. He goes, okay. <laughs> and the guard lets us in because no one's expecting that. You're expecting, what are we taught from TV and, and reality TV shows about cops and all this? You're taught that criminals are panicky. They run at the first sign of danger. You know, they look disheveled. If we come in and we don't look 
upset. We say, oh, hey, how you doing? Yeah. Can you help me? And I'm trying to get to the wiring in this room here. People go, oh, okay. That, that's what a normal technician would say, I guess. So those kind of stories abound in our industry. But likewise, there are times when the human factor, the human element is what nails us. There was a agribusiness. I'm very proud of this client. I'm proud of the story that I get. It's a story of me getting caught and my team getting nailed. But this was a large agri company that they're doing food production. It was out in a little town, not a lot of security culture in the area, not a lot of you know lock your doors mindset, but enough mindset and enough pride in the job that an employee literally on his day off, we were there on a Sunday and he was driving by, not even on premises, but he looked in the parking lot as he was driving by and he saw a couple of people he didn't recognize. And he went, hmm, that's weird. And then he decided for whatever reason in the back of his mind to K-turn, come back down the street and pull into the parking lot and look around. He literally saw us walk to a building and badge in as we had cloned their access control cards. And he went, all right. Now, your average person would say, oh, clearly they must be here on some guest visitation, whatever. I don't know him. But he said, nope, something just doesn't sit right. And he walked through the halls, walked around the building, trying to find where these weird guys were, saw us and said, hey, excuse me, just curious. What are you What are you working on today? What are you doing here? And we had a whole story concocted. Well, we're with the local utility. We're doing this. We were let in by so-and-so. We were authorized, blah, blah, blah. He said, I don't think Keith would have let you in. I don't think that's really his purview. And we said, no, we, we were just came here from the Wyoming office. We came over, you know, from this side of the state. He said, no, I would have probably heard about that at the Wyoming office. This is, I'm going to need you to hang on while I call this in. And he just had this sense of ownership and pride. He had been with the company for years. He was dedicated to what they did. And he's not like he threw fists and, you know, he didn't throw hands. He didn't try to tackle us. Yeah. But he said, no, I'm just, I'm just going to, that doesn't look right. It's the mentality of if you walk through your neighborhood, are you the type of person to bend over and like pick up litter? Mm-hmm. If you have a real sense of ownership and pride in where you live, you might do that. And yeah, he, we, it was the first time we had to show our authorizing letter pretty much ever. And the letter says, you know, this is a test. Please don't inform others. Good job. You'll be debriefed when it's over. And he understood. He said, okay, I won't compromise the integrity of the test, but uh, yeah, expect more people like me because y'all, you don't work around here. <laughs> and sure enough, we got a couple other people on that job that raised quite the eyebrow at us and said, what are you doing here? First, I've always wondered, have you ever heard of real criminals using an authorization letter to see if that gets passed? Using a fake auth letter? Mm. That's That's got some brass ones to do that. Because you're really, that's a commitment right there, right? If you get caught. Yeah. I've never heard of that. There's nothing that would stop someone, I presume. If they know the pen test industry, it seems like a natural thing, at least to try to get out of hot water for a second. And I've definitely been in situations where I've been challenged and I've shown a fake letter, mm. which we always have a fake one on us too. And the person has said, oh, or you just say, well, I'm here just doing a security test. And a lot of times people will let you go. They won't call it in or anything. They'll just be, oh, okay. Well, mollified. We're not trying to advise criminals here, but take that with a grain of salt if your intentions are ill. One other thing I want to hit on with the you know advancements in technology, one of the things that I've seen at my local Walmart and I've heard of being exploited is the ability to take a photo of a key and then get a key printed. What is the danger there? Do you, do you see that as a significant danger? I will rephrase your question. What is the plausibility there beyond plausible, absolutely provable? I have a talk, in fact, all about this at a conference called Wild West Hackenfest. It's called Copying Keys from Photos, Molds, and More. 
And I talk about all the different unconventional ways someone can make a copy of a key. We did a little clay impression with hot melted metal and everything. But yeah, photographing a key, it's called photo duplication or photo decoding. If someone shows me a key on Twitter, look at this. I can't believe this person is holding up their key. Like I can decode that key rapidly. But I also then have to know where that key goes and go to the lock and try to open it. So if you're sharing you know, photos of your keys, I don't consider that wise, but it does mean that an assailant has to be targeting a specific building or person, which hopefully most of us are leading simple and quiet lives where we don't have that level of targeted attack. It does mean if someone is very security conscious or they're subject to per- perhaps harassment or stalking, which is an unfortunate problem for you know, if you're a woman on the internet, by, by all means, I feel for you. Because it is a real thing. Uh, if you want to learn about it, by all means, check out my talk. Or I have resources on GitHub where someone has shown there was an art gallery of all different keys. And I say, hey, you could decode all these keys. Use these little template guides. There's always the person outside the security industry or the person that's approaching this for the first time, or maybe their friends and family goes, isn't that teaching something really, really bad? Shouldn't we be worried about that? What's your narrative line to answer that? There's always risk in exposing anything that could be considered sensitive or potentially harmful. And it's okay and fair to acknowledge that fact. The good example and parallel that I think we have here would be martial arts training. We've seen, you know, little karate dojos and stuff for people of all ages across this country and other countries for a long time. And yes, could someone with ill intent take that knowledge and training and then, you know, go mug somebody, I suppose, or get in fights at school. Yes, that's of real concern, I guess. But I fall back on the notion that there are far more good people in the world than bad people. And spreading knowledge, even if it's potentially abusable knowledge, will, by dint of those broad population numbers, far more good people than bad, you are helping more good people far more than you are assisting potentially bad people. And the good you are gaining by putting knowledge out into the mass populace offsets that tremendously. Do I want to see people always be encouraged to be responsible? Absolutely. If there was ever found to be a karate dojo that was just teaching anybody at all, even if they actually walk up to the counter and say, so I can learn how to beat people up real good, right? Of course you wouldn't want them doing that. And likewise, in the lock sport world, there is normative pressure. There's a lot of in-group self-selection where we say, nah, that person's a little shady. We're not going to invite them back. If someone went into a restaurant supply store and tried to buy a bunch of knives, but (laughs) wasn't interested clearly in butchery, you'd say, I don't know if you should have that. Or they go into Home Depot and buy duct tape and tarps and (laughs) and hacksaws. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing. Home Depot sells crowbars. They sell pipe wrenches because these are tools. And if they're going to be used for ill, hopefully a broader number of mechanisms in society should be in place to reduce ill behavior. Unfortunately, we're not very good at that sometimes. We've known for a long time that things like education and economic opportunity do far, far more to hinder crime than punitive measures. Let's talk about the sport side of this. I'm wondering if you can kind of describe the community that's involved there and give the listeners a flavor of what it's like to walk into a lock picking village or someplace where everybody's practicing these types of things. So lock sport as a term refers to what we would almost equally call hobbyist lock picking or amateur lock picking. No cynicism, but I swear 
people probably added the word sport because if you call anything a sport, it suddenly gets taken more seriously. Mm. Well, why do you have this weird fascination with juggling? Well, no, I'm actually a competitive juggler. I'm into juggle sport. <laughs> Something that would be considered a fritter of your spare time becomes, oh, well, there's rigor and discipline involved. That's sure is impressive that you dedicate and you, you're, how are you ranked in juggling? That's amazing. So yes, lock sport as a term, I think it satisfies a lot of curious people who don't understand it. Oh, well, okay, they're into a strange sport. Must be on ESPN 7. But in practical sense, there is truth to the fact that when you put any sort of skill and try to do it under stress, it does separate out who can really master it and who can't. So with lock sport, it is what you might imagine if you've never seen it done. It is head-to-head competitions. How can you get this lock open gracefully and non-destructively as quickly or quicker than the other competitors. And this can extend to simple manipulation with pick tools like you might see in TV and film, or this can be techniques that locksmiths and professional entry teams will use to make keys. There's a tactic called impressioning, which sounds almost like magic to the listener. It's if I'm on the outside of a locked door with nothing but a blank key and you know some little filing tools, I can turn that key into a working key by wiggling it a certain way in the door and observing it very carefully and looking for evidence on the key that the door is literally leaking its information out to me. So I can fabricate a key and other competitors can do it in minutes. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden the lock is working and perpetually working because now you have a key. You didn't just open it once. Uh, I mentioned I'm a safe technician, right? Well, there are competitive dialing that safe lock, dialing and manipulation of the safe lock faster than your neighbor's I'll be at the Safe Tech Conference run by SAFTA, the lock and safe organization, and they have a safe manipulation contest that happens. And we've run those too in a casual sense in some of the lockpick villages. It's really neat to see when the chips are down, who can put up or shut up. And it's a wonderful skill that you can discipline yourself to try to do better each time. You don't need to have a large gym or a large bit of expensive equipment like other sports. So yeah, lock sport as a discipline, as a hobby, I think it's great, and I'm loving seeing it grow. I see lock sport in the digital equivalent of that, something like CTFs. It scratches that itch that somebody that may do that outside of the law might do if there weren't this safe environment. Mm -hmm. Because you look 30 years ago in computer hacking, there weren't CTFs, there weren't virtual environments. And people to experiment and to flex their skills would have to do something that was technically illegal unless they could set up their own lab environment. Do you see Locksport functioning kind of that same way of giving people the safe way to learn a new skill, to expand their mind, to build a community, but without going outside of the bounds that would be acceptable in society? Absolutely. And I do think it's so cool that you bring that up. It's a really healthy thing to make sure there are outlets where people can turn with this kind of knowledge. As you point out, what would have happened decades ago, and in fact did, is it was a bunch of kids potentially getting in trouble with their school or their apartment building or what have you if they were getting on the roofs and bridges and so forth at night. I know a lot of kids in school that would poke around on the network, right, as computers were just starting to get into the classroom. Or just even on the local machine, they would poke around on the machine setting change the backdrop to something funny. And I was very fortunate that I grew up at an age, and presumably you did too, where we can recall hijinks were treated as hijinks. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, I think it's heaven sent that there are these play zones that are considered safe, 
and that students and other young folk who want to explore can do so without getting in trouble. Because nowadays, there's just no tolerance. People would be thrown out of school for stuff that was just laughed off when we were young. Go into your affiliation with Tool for a little bit and explain what Tool is. Tool, Tool with three O's, which people joke the lockpicking is practiced over and over and over again to get good. <laughs> tool with three O's is the open organization of lockpickers. That is a group that has been around for quite a long time. It's one of the oldest hobbyist organizations, originally founded in the Netherlands, both the Dutch and the Germans. That part of the world has had a long history of hacking and exploring in a number of ways, and that definitely has included lockpicking for a long time. Tool migrated through people from those areas coming to the U.S., teaching and lecturing at hacker conferences. And now there is a rich and probably larger than the European scene, vibrant scene of lockpickers in Tool teaching others. First of all, I should point out, we're very proud to say we've been a nonprofit 501c3 for a very long time. And I say we because I am on the board of directors of Tool. I've actually been the longest serving board member Mm. at close to, I guess, oh gosh, 13, 14 years at this point on the board of directors. Tool is not the only one running those lockpick villages that you see, but definitely we're responsible for a lot of them. Again, without the profit motive getting in the way, because boy, has lockpicking become a cash grab online. There's no shortage of people now telling you, oh, buy my picks here. Come, we got the latest and greatest. Buy our lockpicks. And I mean, Maker Faire was selling lockpicks. And, you know, DEF CON has eight different vendors all selling lockpicks. But since we're doing it, not just to keep the lights on, but really doing it for the community, Tool turns that around and tries to put out as much as we can at low or no cost. So all of our educational materials are free. Access to all of our meetings is public. We actually have a policy where if Tool gets invited by an event and they say, we'd love a lockpick village, and we look at the event, we say, well, I mean, this is a $1,000 a head corporate event. I mean, do you let people in off the street or are we just going to be talking to your employees? And If it's not a real public scene, we usually will not say yes to that. We'll say, look, hey, there's a lot of people in the lock sports space. We can pass the word to them. But yeah, we're really interested only in public education, not sort of private locking up of knowledge in little corners and dark spaces. Tool went on hiatus for much of the pandemic. It's not really safe to do such shared handling and passing materials around as you're all crowded around that table. We're really hoping that people with vaccination rates and understanding of some treatments, that we're going to see some things safely resuming. So look for tool.us, tool with three O's.us on Twitter, tool with three O's on Twitter. And look at your local hacker cons and hacker spaces and meetups. If somebody doesn't know about lockpicking, it's a, again, it's not a huge investment. You can add lockpicking to your local hacker meetup for 20 bucks. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Deviant Olaf. Deviant has such an interesting way of phrasing his viewpoints. And if you're interested in things like lockpicking or penetration testing, I encourage you to check out Deviant's books. Practical Lockpicking, a physical penetration testers training guide, and Keys to the Kingdom, impressioning, privilege escalation, bumping, and other key-based attacks against physical locks. And also be sure to take advantage of all the great free educational resources available from the open organization of lockpickers at T-O-O-O-L dot U-S. That's T-3-O-S-L dot U-S. Thanks again to Deviant Olaf, and thanks to you, our listeners. We're working hard on all the prep and behind-the-scenes details for Season 3 of this show, and I'll be sharing more about that 
very soon. And with that, thanks so much for listening. And thanks again to my guest, Deviant Olaf. If you've been enjoying 8th Layer Insights and you want to know how you can help make the show successful, there are two big ways you can do so, and both are super important. First, if you haven't yet, go ahead and take just a couple seconds to give us five stars and to leave a short review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any other podcast platform that allows you to do so. That helps other people who stumble upon the show have the confidence that this show is worth their most valuable resource, their time. The second big way that you can help is by telling someone else about the show. Word of mouth referrals are priceless. They are really the lifeblood behind helping people find good podcasts. And if you haven't yet, please go ahead and subscribe or follow wherever you like to get your podcasts. If you want to connect with me, feel free to do so. You'll find my contact information at the very bottom of the show notes for this episode. The show was written, recorded, and sound designed by me, Perry Carpenter, with editing help from Mason Amadeus. Artwork for 8th Layer Insights is designed by Chris Machowski at ransomware.net, that's W-E-A-R, and Mia Rune at miarune.com. The 8th Layer Insights theme song was composed and performed by Marcus Moscat. Until next time, I'm Perry Carpenter, signing off.